Welcome to my Idaho friends. I am your host, Jaime Lima, and we will be having conversations with business owners and centers of influence throughout the state of Idaho. Please make sure you follow us on our YouTube page and our Instagram, and I hope you enjoy the show. Cheers. All right. And uh, welcome to the segment over here in Argos TV known as My Idol Friends. I am your host, Jaime Lima, and today we have a very special guest today, uh, Dr. Thomas J. Kaufman from Satin Epidemiology and in, uh, Infectious Diseases mm -hmm. here in the great state of Idaho. Uh, also uh, known as Dad, he is my father-in-law. Thank you for being here today, Tom. My pleasure. <laughs> All right, appreciate it. And uh, clearly, we're not practicing very good uh, physical distancing. This is more than likely because you know we've been hanging out this whole time. So yeah. True. So so Can't there's that. the grandchildren. Not gonna happen. <laughs> right, right, right. So yeah. So. So again, uh, thank you, uh, Dad, for being here today. Uh, really, really appreciate it. Um, before we get started with all the questions and, and all the things, uh, you mind uh, telling us a little bit about yourself? How long have you been in infectious diseases here in Idaho? And a little bit about SATU epidemiology. I've uh, been here 30 years uh, doing uh, infectious disease work at all the hospitals. We're, we're, we're independent. We don't work for one of the hospital systems. I started out by myself and had another partner come for a while and, and he left. And then uh, another partner came and joined me, uh, Dr. Blue. Uh, he came in probably 98 or so, 97, 98. And then we had another partner join us in 2009 and 2011 and 2000. Anyway, so there's seven of us now. All right. Yeah. Got so out of hand. <laughs> yeah, so seven total uh, infectious diseases doctors yeah. in, in your office. And how many infectious diseases doctors here in the state of Idaho? Um, there's a, a, a one over at the VA, and um, uh, there's I think there's two over in Eastern Idaho, or perhaps three over in Eastern Idaho in Twin Falls. Uh, I'm sorry, Idaho Falls. And there had been one up in uh, Coeur d'Alene. I'm not sure if he's still there or not. So. Uh, about 10 total, really, in private practice. Oh, okay, cool. So thank you for sharing. Go ahead mm -hmm. and push that door closed so the children don't come in uh, and, and bust in. Thanks, uh, yeah. Keeping it very tight and professional here in the home office slash studio slash whatever this might be. Yeah, the studio. Yeah, all right, so let's get down to it. You have your beer from Bear Island. I have my 44 North Vodka. Or you're not supposed to be drinking. No, I'm not on call. Okay, good. All right. So this, I don't know. I just you hesitated reaching for your beer. <laughs> All right, just kidding. Uh, so let's start with some good news. Uh, before uh, we got started over here, uh, you mentioned that things were not very busy at the hospital. What do you mean by that? Well, um, we've so far escaped a, a big onslaught of sick patients in the hospital setting, uh, like they're seeing in other places, uh, Washington, uh, the Detroit area, New Orleans, uh, New York, New Jersey. Um, we've had about 1,400 and some positive cases here. Um, uh, only 20, I think 24 or 27 deaths, which is more than we'd like, but not huge. Uh, you know, they were having that many in an hour or two in New York City. So <clears throat> we've um, we've skated around it. I think it's a couple of reasons. We are not as population dense as the big cities are that have huge outbreaks. Um, people are more scattered. Uh, perhaps a little bit less international travel here than in some of the bigger cities. Uh, and then, I, with the exception of the experience up in uh, Blaine County, uh, we haven't had any big uh, outbreaks. But in Blaine County was the number one uh, infection per uh, population base in the whole country for a while. And that was after some get-togethers up there several weeks ago. And it really uh, exploded in, in Blaine County. And it's had an effect on... The hospital system, the St. Luke's hospital system, because they have the hospital up in, in Wood River and and in Twin Falls, and they've had the they've carried the burden of hospitalized patients so far. 
So what are what are some numbers right now here uh, in the local level here for the state of Idaho? Um, I mean, we're, we're we're a large state, but, you know, as far as like population goes, like you mentioned, you know, there's not many, you know, we're not very dense. And uh, like you mentioned, you know, the number of deaths still, you know, more than we would like to, but still fairly low, yeah. you know, when, when looking at just data, looking at just numbers. Uh, where are we at as far as like confirmed cases? Well, it's, again, it's about 1,425 confirmed cases so far as of a little while ago um, in the state. Um, they've tested about uh, 24,000, so that's about one in 10 that have been tested that are positive, uh, which is not a bad ratio. Um, it'd be nice if we had broader testing, more aggressive testing. I think we're missing people who are not quite sick enough uh, to require testing because they're probably not going to require hospitalization. And we still are uh, struggling with getting enough testing reagents to screen as many people as we like to screen. That was a huge problem early on. Uh, we're starting to climb out from under that, but we're not able to go out and say, hey, you know, you might have been sick a couple of weeks ago. Let's check to make sure you don't still have the virus. We don't have enough reagents to do that. Uh, I think we'd find a lot more people. Uh, the denominator of infected people would be a lot higher if we had uh, complete random access to testing which we don't okay now with those numbers uh again <clears throat> based on your professional opinion what are we thinking as far as the the curve you know, everybody keeps talking about flattening the curve mm -hmm. everybody wants to make sure that the hospital systems do not get overwhelmed everybody wants to make sure that anybody that is at risk is not going to be actually getting this virus and potentially dying from it what's that looking like for us here in idaho well uh, <clears throat> we haven't had a surge, a significant surge yet in terms of a huge volume of patients that have threatened to overwhelm the hospital system. Uh, if what had happened in Blaine County had happened statewide, we'd be screwed. Okay. Uh, they, they had a huge number of patients in a short period of time. Quite a few of them got very sick and had to be hospitalized. Some have passed away. If that had happened uh, throughout the Treasure Valley, uh, we would be getting buried right now. Uh, so. I think that uh, there were some specific social events that occurred in Blaine County in the in the uh, Haley and Ketchum area that triggered that outbreak up there that we did not have the similar sort of uh, occurrence down here. And so we were spared that outbreak uh, in that rapid of a fashion. Um, could that happen if we loosen restrictions? It could. Uh, but I think that people understand now how at risk we are. And I think even if they opened up, uh, you know, the closures of restaurants and, and uh, bars and music venues and, and uh, movie theaters, people will be cautious. They'll be more careful than they normally would be. They might wear masks. They might wash their hands 45 times in an hour. Things that are gonna be important um, to prevent a super rapid spread. Um, but that risk does remain. There's no question about it. Right. So that's flattening the curve. What about when people are talking about the, the spike? Uh, and, and I shouldn't say people, but like in the, in the, in the medical field, specifically your field, uh, every state is going to have a different timeline as far as their spike is. Will you explain to people what that spike is and why we should be worried about it? Well, the spike is what you get if you don't flatten the curve. And so we, if we've if we've been successful in flattening the curve by uh, invoking social distancing, closing places where people can get uh, infected more easily, uh, a lot of people in small areas, uh, then we've already we've already gotten rid of that that spike. And the curve now we have to try to flatten it so it stays below our ability to handle those patients in a healthcare setting. Uh, we know that uh, most people that get this virus do not get sick enough to come into the hospital, but the ones that do can get extremely sick and uh, it can really tax the resources in the intensive care units and, and be, uh, you know, be genuinely catastrophic for the, for healthcare system and certainly for the patients in that healthcare system. So our goal is to blunt that so that when people do get desperately sick and are in a life threatening uh, life and death situation, we can appropriately take care of them. And uh, so far, We've been successful, um, and, we, and we hope it stays that way. Good. Okay. Like I said, good news all around.
And uh, we are very, very touchy. Subject. Cheers, man. Cheers. Um, so, um, I was uh, I was looking at an NPR report earlier today, and they had a model as to like when each state was going to reach its, uh, you know, the, their spike and whatnot. But based on what you just explained, again, we're doing physical <laughs> distancing right. Perhaps you get to avoid it. Um, it seems like perhaps, at least for us, um, the great state of Idaho, we might be able to dodge this bullet if if we hold what we have. But who's to say, right? No, nobody can really predict that. Who's to say? If we're lucky, we will. Okay, so let's let's deviate a little bit from the happy go lucky good news because there's not many, and this is most certainly a grim subject. If we were to get a spike. And I know you can you don't have a crystal ball and you cannot tell us when you think said spike would be. What about this that I that you know I have talked before and I have read in some some other reports as far as like you know the the inevitable second spike if there's a first one? What 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 is that? Well the thought is that we'll go through a wave now of people that are well, we're all susceptible, there's no herd immunity yet. Uh, so we'll go through a wave where a lot of people get infected. Uh, most hopefully will develop immunity to reinfection. We, we actually don't have firm, solid data that if you get infected with this virus and recover, will you be immune for life or for the next six months? We, we don't know that. We would, like, we would like to think it's for life, but we don't have that data. Um, and until we have more information, longitudinally, we won't know. So that's one question. Uh, the second question is, uh, if there's so, suppose at the end of the summer or in the middle of summer, we have 15% uh, of the population has been exposed and is immune. Uh, that means that 85% is still susceptible. And so when we further loosen uh, restrictions in terms of gatherings and social distancing and stuff like that. And in the fall, when it gets colder and wetter and we're inside more and we're congregating more and things like that, um, will there be a second spike? I think we all predict that, yes. Will it be as, will it be as bad as what New York just went through? God, I hope not. Um, and, and theoretically, I guess if, if everything worked out way better than anyone could expect, we could potentially have a vaccine by the fall, but I think that is not very likely because it takes a long time to prove that a vaccine is going to be effective and safe. And uh, I don't think, you know, the FDA has loosened rules like you can't believe in this. Pandemic. I mean, it's ridiculous, but I, I don't know if they'll, if they'll pull the trigger on on releasing a vaccine that's that's basically unproven in terms of safety safety and efficacy uh, by the fall. I mean, some miracle occur, they might do it, but it would have it would be an extraordinary event if that happened. Yeah, so I've been reading, I mean, since from a month ago, they have been saying uh, 18 months, 18 months, we're gonna have a vaccine or we're gonna do our very best. And that just seems overly optimistic, even for somebody who's not a medical professional. Yeah. Um, and I know there's a lot of people who are trying to remain positive, uh, hopes and dreams and whatnot. But uh, at, at the same time, uh, when you mentioned, you know, the the loosening the the loosening of regulations by the <clears throat> FDA just bring forth a whole number of other questions that uh -huh. we, we, we're not gonna. I think that maybe that's a that's a follow up episode, <laughs> uh, 10, 10 to fifteen months from now. But uh, I. Uh, yeah, it seems a little bit worrisome, but at the same time, uh, perhaps necessary, being that we need to have something in place. Yeah. So, something needs to happen. I think that uh, some of these um, vaccines, for instance, may be released in other parts of the world way before they get approved here, uh, places with less of a safety net, if you will, from the FDA. Um, and that may be how we find out whether it's going to whether they're going to work or not. I, I don't know. Um, okay. In terms of safety is another issue. You know, safety and, and efficacy both have to be proven uh, in my mind. And we're not quite there yet. Got gotcha. Now, 
this is a question that is in a lot of people's minds. There's a, there's a lot of people talking, and I'm, I'm going to try to to keep this as non-political as possible. But <laughs> there's a there's a number of drugs that are being tried for um, for for treatment yeah. right now. Uh, some of them there's a there's a small yet somewhat hopeful you know successful uh, you know pool of, of 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 data that is just kind of leads some people to believe that perhaps this could be something that that can help treat people under COVID nineteen. Mm -hmm. um, what's what's on your radar? Because I know there's so many, and, and I'm not, not going to ask you to start spitting out names of medications, but is there something out there that that is worth keeping track of or is there just a number of medications in which just there's just absolutely not enough data or just no data whatsoever, period? Yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, just in general, uh, viral infections, the majority of viral infections are best treated uh, with some sort of active medication before they become clinically symptomatic. So preemptive treatment, really, as we call it. Right. And we don't have uh, we don't have any uh, mechanism of tracking down people that are about to get sick with COVID. The only thing we would have is someone has a very high risk exposure. Uh, and then they come and tell us the next day at high risk exposure, would we enroll them on, put them on some sort of medication to prevent active disease? Uh, there actually are trials going on right now in this country with that specific question in mind to see if preemptive therapy with some antiviral medication might be helpful. Uh, the most common one right now is hydroxychloroquine. Uh, but we don't know that it works. We don't know that it works even if you, whether you get it before you have an infection clinically, while it's incubating, or after you're actively sick with the infection. Um, other drugs are like remdesivir. Again, there's no randomized trials. Uh, convalescent serum is kind of like this black box. Nobody knows how that's going to work. Um, there's a number of other treatments out there that people are uh, advocating. But to know that it's really going to work, the only way to do it scientifically is to do a randomized controlled trial where you have one arm with this disease, another arm with this disease, and this guy, these guys over here get treatment, and these guys get placebo. And you follow them to see what happens. And if there's a significant difference in outcome in favor of the medication you're uh, experimenting with, well, then that would show that it works. Despite the fact there have been close to 2 million people with this infection on this planet, that's not been done yet. And, and we have these anecdotes of maybe this medication might help a little bit, and maybe this medication helps a little bit. But I'll tell you what, in terms of clinical outcomes in any groups of people where there's a clear, concise, and definitive statement that drug X, Y, or Z works, it is non-existent. And so right now we are flying blind and it's really annoying because um, we have people that are desperately ill and we, we, we don't have the magic bullet to pull out and give them. Um, we're trying some things that, that seem to be helpful, but even in our hands uh, with as small a number of people we have, it's hard to do a controlled trial. And so we're hopeful that some of these trials that are being put together by the NIH and the CDC will give us some answers. And we can then say, oh, guess what? You know, you've been exposed. You're going to take this medication. You won't get sick. We don't have that or you are sick and you're this sick. We're going to give you this medication to make you better. We don't have that answer yet either. So it's, um, it's, it's troubling, really troubling. Because when you think that there's 2 million people who had this infection, there should be somewhere somebody would say, look, this happened. Everyone I treated got better right away, and these people all died. So guess what? This works. That hasn't happened. We don't we don't have that data, and um, this may be a situation where we have there is no intervening treatment, if you will, that will meaningfully change the course of this disease, and we'll have to rely on herd immunity, 
In other words, people getting sick but not dying from it and then being immune so they can't carry it and transmit it to somebody else or some vaccine in six or eight or 12 or 18 months. Um, it'd be nice to think we come up with some medication we can use, but right now we don't know. Right. So nothing to prevent it, nothing to treat it as far as right now. We don't, <clears throat> due to significant data and, and actual analysis of said data that, that is facilitating peace of mind and confidence for some, any medical professional as of right now to say like, this is something that we, that everybody needs to get. Right, no, definitely not that. Nothing that everybody needs to get. We have some things we can try on people, and we would like to think they're going to work. But we don't have any any proof based on a scientific study uh, with a, a high enough number of patients involved to give us a, a power, if you will, that shows that it really is a true result. We don't have that data. Okay. So uh, now we have mentioned, I say we, but you have, uh, <laughs> uh, herd immunity. Mm -hmm. All right, so herd immunity. Um, I, I I get the feeling that I, I understand it and that I get it, but let's just go ahead and pretend that I don't. You know, what is herd immunity and how does it apply to this virus right now? And how do we go about safely, if even possible, um, safely ensure that we can successfully um, implement herd immunity if, if there's even a thing? Well, you know, flattening the curve doesn't necessarily prevent all disease transmission. There's still people that are getting that are getting exposed to the virus and getting it and getting sick. And if they survive the infection, again, if we if this is like most other viral infections, they'll be immune. We don't have clear 100% proof of that, but there's no reason to think it wouldn't be that way. And so that person would then be immune and would not be able to contract it from someone else or pass it on to someone else. So the idea is to have as many people in the herd immune as possible. If we can do that with a very gradually progressive uh, infection through society where a few people get infected every day, but there's no wave, no, no huge surge, then over time, you can get herd immunity. Um, we think to prevent, to prevent epidemic transmission, if you will, you want to have about maybe 55, 60, 65% of the population be, be immune so that it breaks transmission cycle. Right now, we don't have anywhere near that, um, maybe except in Blaine County. But, uh, it, you know, globally, that is not the case, and certainly not in Idaho. And so uh, we need to let the disease kind of creep through society, if you will, uh, get as many people mildly ill as possible and not get sick enough to come to the hospital and die. Um, and and over time, maybe by this time next year, we'll have enough herd immunity that we won't have any more epidemic or pandemic spread. But that's totally speculative uh, based on whether or not we come up with a medication that can blunt the disease or that if a vaccine can be used to uh, blunt the disease or if we have a huge surge when we, when we release the restrictions people are going to right now, uh, hopefully it won't happen. We won't have a huge blast of sick patients. It'll, it'll be this background kind of smoldering uh, epidemiology like we're seeing right now where we have people coming in every day with the disease, but not a huge number. So, so um, I apologize to everybody at home watching this. Those are my children in the background. Yelling and screaming. Don't apologize. Well, you know, it, 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 I know they're perfect. Those are the <laughs> perfect grandsons right out there. So just right. live well, with that. Would you, do you mind locking the door so your perfect grandsons do not burst into here? We're that would yeah. be fun. <laughs> All right. So, okay. I'll lock okay. Thank you, Dad. <laughs> thank you. Um, so, based on what you just explained, you know, uh, to everybody watching, with herd immunity and, and you know everything that we've been talking about, you know, the not, not there being enough data, uh, the lack of being able to provide and facilitate, uh, you know, the appropriate study uh, for a number of things that we have already discussed. Then what what is Idaho's best chance to still remain as we are right now, <clears throat> as far as uh, you know, the mortality rate that we're having, that we're experiencing, which is fairly low, mm -hmm. okay, which is good news. Um, even though there's confirmed, uh, the, the, the number of confirmed cases 
are still low. I, I know there's not enough testing and not, not everybody knows whether they had or not. What is it that Idaho can do? Because granted, this, this hypothesis over here, just me talking again, I'm not a medical professional, but I think Idaho, because of we're so spread out, not living on top of each other, we're, we're in a unique position in order to perhaps set ourselves up for success. Do people just need to just stay at home and just period, just everybody? Do, do people who are at risk and at risk only should try to remain at home for a longer period of time while everybody else starts perhaps getting back to work and getting back to school? Uh, and, and I know you don't drive this train. You know, a lot of this comes, you know, CDC guidance, federal government guidance, down to the governor, you know, on the state level. But in your professional opinion, what is it that Idaho can do based on our, our unique situation here? How how we can best deal with what is with what we currently have right now? I think in terms of reducing mortality, it'd be important to remind people at high risk. That's elderly people with underlying heart disease, hypertension, uh, chronic kidney disease, uh, chronic lung disease, things like that to stay as out of circulation as they can reasonably accomplish uh, because those are the folks that are going to get sick and come into the hospital and, and potentially have a very poor outcome. Um, most of our critically ill patients have been uh, over 60, but we've had some in the 30s and 40s and 50s. Uh, it's a, you know, it's an odds game. Um, but if if you were, you know, you're 75 years old and you've had high blood pressure and you've got atrial fibrillation, you've uh, and your lungs are not the greatest, you're the type of individual that could do really poorly with this infection. So it'd be important to keep, have those people stay as cautious as they can, keep social distancing, wash their hands like crazy, and stay away from people that are coughing. Uh, they may survive two years until we get a vaccine. Um, for younger people that have to go to work, uh, that are not as high a risk for a terminal outcome with this, they still can get very, very sick, but they probably won't die from it. Uh, a gradual uh, reduction or relaxation of the closures that we have will probably have to occur at some point, whether it's uh, in a week or two weeks or a month. I don't know. That's not um, that's not my pay grade. But at some point, they'll have to start letting people out and going back to work and going to restaurants and going to uh, movie theaters, things like that. Um, that will be a gradual process. If, if Dr. Governor Little open that uh, door tomorrow, people won't flood to restaurants and bars and, and movie theaters. It'll be a very gradual trickle uh, because people are still concerned about this. They're still super cautious. They're gonna be careful. They don't wanna make themselves sick or their family members sick. So I think what'll happen is we'll see this gradual recovery in terms of social gatherings uh, that will bring with it a surge in the number of cases that we find. But if we can keep that surge from affecting the people that are going to get sick and die from this, it will lead to further herd immunity over time. Uh, it will lead to more hospital visits and more testing, but not necessarily crash the system like has happened in, in New York and Detroit and New Orleans. Um, and so we can be cognizant of that. Uh, that that fact and the, and the dynamic that that will take, um, we might be okay. But it's going to be, uh, you know, I mean, it's a crapshoot. We just don't know how this is going to pan out. Because, it, again, because testing has been so uh, sporadic and, and uh, incomplete, we right now don't have this as of today. I can't tell you what the number of cases of positive COVID is in Idaho. I can tell you the number of cases that got screened and are positive, but there's probably another 10,000 cases out there we don't know about because we have no screen roll. So we, right. But we don't know. It might be 1,000, might be 5,000, might be 20,000. But we don't have any way of knowing. And the accuracy of the test as of today right now? Well, testing is, we, there's a bunch of issues with testing. Boys, no. Kids, hey, stop. Um, we don't have um there's two issues with testing there's sampling because you take a swab and you put it back in somebody's nose way back in there mm -hmm. and it's uh 
it's not comfortable. People don't like it. And so you got to be aggressive. You got to go back there and get a good sample, make the patient uncomfortable. Tears come to their eyes. Um, I think they're going to, you know, get a piece of brain tissue back there so far. So you've got to, that's how you got to do it. You got to get a good sample. If you don't get a good sample, then the test in the lab is of not much value. Uh, now, if you do, do get a good sample and it gets to the lab in an appropriate time and container, all that stuff, we think it's probably an 85 to 90 percent accuracy. Uh, it's not 100 percent, but it's pretty good. But if you get a poor sample, it doesn't matter how good the test is because it won't be it won't be helpful. And so there's two there's two issues, there's the sampling and the testing. And all together, if you gather it all together. I'm guessing where we should be hopefully in the 75 to 80% accuracy, maybe 85%. Uh, there are new tests coming online um, almost daily that give us a more rapid turnaround that are also highly accurate, maybe more accurate than the current tests that are out there that we've been using for the last month. Um, that will help expand our testing capabilities because right now we've been very limited, um, both in terms of reagents and the turnaround time. Uh, we, there have been situations we've had to wait 10 days for a result. Now, now we're down to more like two days or three days. Um, in some cases, uh, we can get a result back in an hour. So once that we get all that going, we'll be in better shape. But right now, I think testing, we have to say, pick a number out of the air, 80%, 85%, I can't tell you. Um, it's not 100 There's no test that's 100%. So um, we do the best we can. Okay. Thank you, Ed. Now, let's tackle some fears, and hopefully we can give people some peace of mind. All right, so I have uh, a number of things that I'm continuously discussing uh, you know, with my inner circle, and sometimes with clients, and people uh, from work, via Zoom, and all this other stuff, and then, of course, the uh, never-ending amount of concerns and information, be it accurate or false, that come through either news or social media or anything like that. People are concerned about children. What can you tell us about children, being that, you know, you being a professional grandfather and all? But children uh, really don't get very sick with this. There's an occasional case where there's a bad outcome with a child. But by and large, uh, they, don't, uh, they don't get sick. They hardly ever get tested. Um, I don't think we've had any... Uh, significant cases in, under, in people under 20 in the state of Idaho so far. I mean, I don't have exact data, but it's been rare uh, if it's happened at all. Um, nationwide, there have been a few cases reported of of uh, uh, fatalities in in uh, younger people, even down to the you know babies. But we don't know what other underlying issues were going on uh, in terms of that child's outcome, and um, so I don't think we have enough uh, information right now to make a you know, blanket statement. Right. But there's been a quarter of a million uh, people in the United States with this virus so far. And you know that a ton, I mean, hundreds of thousands of children have been exposed and may have been infected and not gotten sick enough to be even tested. So I think for children, this is a, um, it's really not a significant disease. The reason for that, we don't fully understand. Uh, there are some, uh, potential reasons that were that are being investigated we don't have all of them dialed in yet right so whenever and which is super crazy unfortunate that we do lose a child to this is we're talking uh, incredibly rare incredibly rare and we're talking big data not just like numbers against the state or countrywide but worldwide yeah right okay um again Fears of uh, um, uh, women who are expecting their first child, for example. Or even their second or third. Or second or third, uh, yeah. Pre pregnant women can get sick with this. Obviously, it causes pneumonia. And if mm -hmm. you're having pneumonia and you're, and you're well into pregnancy, it can be, have a, a effect on your breathing and potentially, I guess, could trigger you know, preterm labor maybe. But again, across the planet, uh, pregnancy does not appear to be a huge risk factor for this. And... Uh, the uh, we don't we do know already that the mortality with this in pregnant women is substantially less than it is in the flu. Oh, surprisingly enough, okay. even though across the board it's more lethal than influenza, in pregnant women it's less so. And uh, that's good to know. Yeah. Okay, that's awesome. Now, 
for those who are babies and children. And then there's the <clears throat> what I call outlier cases with young people. This is something that we have talked about before. Uh, there will be a report. There will be some sort of news that gets shared. Mostly, you know, like most people get their news these days via social media. You know, there was a young ER nurse. There was a young doctor. There was a young somebody. You know, 35 years old, and and the report says, you know, that they were healthy and they died. Mm -hmm. You know. And, Again, something that you and I have discussed before, and I don't want to steal any of your thunder, but what about if we know there's a, over a quarter million documented cases in this country, which means there's probably been a million, uh, somewhere in that mix, there's going to be some unfortunate souls that are younger. They're going to get sick and they're going to die from it. We don't know if it's because of they, do they have some unusual underlying medical thing we don't know about? possible. Uh, could it be an inoculum effect where they got exposed to such a huge amount of virus all at once that are overwhelmed? It's a, it's a slow process. We're not having a lot of success in all this information. Okay. And so in some of these situations, there's a young person, I think it could be multifactorial. Maybe they have some underlying immune issue we don't know about. Maybe they have an underlying uh, problem with hypertension we don't know about. Maybe there's some heart issue we don't know about. Or maybe they got exposed to a huge amount of virus all at once and, and didn't realize they had such a high exposure. All of these things are completely speculative. We, we just don't have enough data points right now to make those judgments. Right. And, and that's something that you and I have discussed before. Um, my, my growing frustration as far as, like, you know, consuming or spreading, you know, responsible, accurate information uh, comes down to, uh, you know, if somebody says, you know, oh, I, I was at this hospital and this young, healthy person passed because of the virus. And, uh, and again, just going back a, a week or a few days ago, the only way that we're able to know that if is an autopsy takes place you know, it, yeah, I mean, if, it, yeah, I mean, if you really don't know for sure, but I'm not sure an autopsy would, would guarantee that was the only thing that was going on. Oh, okay. right. So, uh, you, you could tell that they had some catastrophic lung injury, for instance, that, which, that, which took them, but you wouldn't know for sure. There wasn't other underlying issues that, that brought that to a head. So, you know, it's a clinical diagnosis. You think someone died of uh, coronavirus and they had no other reason to, to be dead. That's probably what it was. Okay. All right. All right. And then um, <clears throat> on a more personal level, mm -hmm. okay, because, you know, um, not that it's a secret. Hopefully it's not. But you're 65. Mm -hmm. Almost. Almost. Okay. This year. Hey. Part hey, 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 hey. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all out of 44 Nerdboard. So you'll be 65 a little bit later. Uh -huh. All right. Uh, but a young 65, of right, course. A go. young, very healthy, very active uh, 65. So uh, I, I try not to, because you're certainly busy taking care of a lot of people, but not just me, but also the rest of the family. You know, um, think often about you because you're within the age group, you know, somewhat, you know, that some will consider, if not everybody, you know, at risk. And you're mm -hmm. out there taking care of people, taking care of patients, you're advising the hospitals here on the local level, mm -hmm. you know, along with your practice, lots of meetings about that. Uh, you know, what what does that look like for, mm -hmm. you know, for your demographic, people in your age group? So the healthier you are, the better your chances, or it's just a matter of, like, you get it and you're in this age group and it's just like, oh. Well, you know, I, you Somebody my age with no underlying issues, uh, you'd get sick. You'd have fevers and chills for a while, probably have uh, shortness of breath and uh, not be very enthusiastic about going to work or going out and doing anything. And then you'd get over it. Um, I mean, if if you look at people that, that die from this in in uh, the state is coming mostly from Europe right now, uh, less so from here. So we're still struggling with the, the outbreak. But. Uh, the mortality rate in people that were 60 to 70 in uh, Spain and Italy and um, probably Germany and France as well uh, was about four to five percent of people between 60 and 70. If you go 70 to 80, it was about eight percent. 
and above 80, it's about 15%. So the other way to look at it is if you're 80 and above, you still have a 85% of survival. Okay. So and of those people that got really sick and died, nearly all of them had, had some sort of underlying issue with hypertension, lung disease, heart disease, uh, renal failure, some sort of problem that made them more susceptible to any kind of viral infection that came along, and it happened to be this one. Okay. And, and what about, um, you know, these people who are at risk that do get sick and then all of a sudden have to be admitted to this hospital? You know, there, there was suddenly a conversation. I was like, okay, so now they have to be in respirators. Uh, hopefully here, uh, not just in Idaho, I cannot speak for outside of the state. Uh, we never enter a situation similar to, like, Italy in which they have to be trying to make a choice between, you know, who's going to be able to get on a ventilator. Right. And, um, we've, not, we've not had that here. I, they may have had that in New York. I don't know. Um, but we've not come very close to that here. Uh, and I don't know, Seattle perhaps uh, a month or so ago, several weeks ago, might have had that issue come up. But I, I, I didn't hear that personally, so I don't know that for sure. Okay. Um, I do know that they're... Uh, struggling for resources in a lot of places. A lot of it is not so much the actual machine to put somebody on. It's the people that don't know how to run it that can oh. come to work every single day and get hammered all day long for 12 or 14 hour or 16 hour shifts, day in and day out and day in and day out and day in and day out. And the fatigue factor is colossal. Uh, and um, I think that is probably a, a if you're not taking into account the shortage of actual machines, it's that. It's the people that run the damn things and take care of the patients. Uh, that's been a real crisis in a lot of places. And, and we have nurses from, from here in Boise that uh, have gone to major cities where the outbreak is out of control to help out those hospitals. Because oh, wow. uh, we're not in a position right now where we have to keep everybody locally. Hopefully that won't come. Uh, hopefully in a month we can still send nurses to places that are in desperate need. But um, uh, yeah, right now, right now we have a bunch of nurses that are traveling and helping out places where they they're um, absolutely in in crisis. Um, what are your thoughts? Uh, I guess not necessarily thoughts, but um, excuse me. Uh, explain uh, from what I have read and um, talk. You know, with you know your your daughter, my baby mama, who's a, a physician assistant, uh, you know the concerns with ventilators <clears throat> and uh, the, the amount of pressure that puts um, patients on there, uh, as far as uh, sometimes even potentially creating uh, a lung tissue damage and things along those lines. Or am I making things up because I drank all the vodka already? <laughs> well. Uh... If somebody needs to go on a vent, they need to go on a vent. You know, we don't do that electively. So uh, it would be a, only in a, you know, a absolute crisis situation for that patient. And so if they're not going to be breathing any longer, you put them on the breathing machine and you, and you monitor a whole broad array of things that we that we take care of on someone on a ventilator to make sure that we don't trigger worsening lung disease, that we try to maintain oxygenation without uh, causing other problems. Um, and if the disease can be can be held in check, and the virus runs its course, so to speak, and we keep them alive by uh, artificially breathing for them, and then they start to recover, then we get them off the vent. And uh, we've been successful in a number of patients here so far with it. Okay. So um, you know, we're hopeful it will continue that way. There are some other individuals, again, most likely folks that have really significant underlying disease, mm -hmm. whether it's heart disease or lung disease or both in many cases, that they just don't have the reserve to fight off the virus and stay alive long enough, even with maximal support to survive this. And and those are the people that, that we end up losing. Wow, okay. Oof. All right, well, let's start winding it down a little bit uh, and then just keep it, bring it back a little bit happier space and also uh, a little bit more practical so wearing masks yeah. wearing masks does, uh, does it help should everybody be wearing a mask out there what, what what's what's the real deal with with masks so we think the transmission of this is by droplets so someone's coughing or sneezing or whatever 
within a couple of feet of you, and these little droplets go float in the air, and in those mm -hmm. droplets are some virus. And if you breathe one of those in, then you can get infected. Uh, so having a mask on, on you, that person can cough, you might not breathe in as many of those droplets, or maybe not any of them. Having a mask on the patient, on the person who's coughing with the virus, really reduces it. I mean, you you get some, some droplets still might be expressed, but the number will be dramatically lower. And so if the two of you have a mask on, the chance of transmission through that methodology is pretty remote. Mask, not all masks are the same. A cloth mask you make in your in your on your sewing machine is not going to be super effective. It might you know block 50% or something of the droplets. But the respirator masks that we talk about in the hospital that are in terrible shortage, the N95s, mm -hmm. those are extremely effective in block in blocking droplets. And so uh, if we all had enough N95s to hand out like popcorn, we we'd be golden. But we don't. The hospitals are in drastic shortage of those. And we try to reserve those for people that are in direct care with patients that are known to be COVID positive or in people that are going to be having a lot of respiratory issues. Uh, and we don't know yet their COVID status. They might be positive, might be negative, but they're expelling a huge amount of droplets because of issues that are going on. And we want those people that have uh, an N95 mask until we can confirm that, that patient is COVID negative. So we have a tremendous shortage of the of really the best type of personal protection for the pay, for the healthcare uh, provider. Okay. Um, the other thing that masks do, we, we do know that this virus is transmitted to some by direct contact. So I grab something and I put my finger in my mouth because I'm eating a peanut or whatever. Uh, if that virus is on my hand, I'm going to get it. And so having a mask on prevents you from touching your face. And I, I, I don't know who did these studies, but I guess you can film people just without them knowing. And in an hour, an average person touches their face about 30 times. Hmm. Just think, I mean, think about it. Oh, I, I've been touching like my that. time the whole, yeah, the whole time that we've been here. Yeah. 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 So uh, if we prevent that by having a mask on your face, well, guess what? You prevent one of the major modes of transmission of this virus. So hand washing is critically important. Keep it off your hands. Uh, a mask can protect both from the droplet aerosolization, if you will, of breathing in those things, and then contact. So do I wear a mask all day long? Hell no, but when I'm in the hospital, I do. Uh, because there might be patients that are there that I don't know for sure that are COVID or not. And if it's in the airways, I, I won't get it that way. And also I touch my face out a lot less than I would mask on. Yeah. So okay. um, I think it's a reasonable thing to do. Would, you, would I wear one? I don't wear one at home. Uh, do I wear one when I drive my car? No, but um, you know, other situations you could consider it. Now I see a lot of people wearing uh, masks of various sorts in the grocery stores. Um, my concern is not at that level, so I don't do that. Uh, but if I, uh, if we had a lot more community spread, if we had like if we became Blaine County with half the population, <laughs> right. I might think about a mask in the grocery store. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, what about gloves? I, I see people wearing their gloves and, you know, I'm looking at them and they're touching all the things. And, yeah. Uh, what's the deal with the gloves? Well, gloves, again, would be a substitute for hand washing. I, I prefer hand washing myself. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And then hand washing, what would be a reasonable amount of time to be and, you know, as far as, like, how the frequency. You know, if, if, oh, if, well, I, I think as often as you can, as often as you think about it, you walk by a sink, wash your hands. Okay. That's, that's a lot. No. That I means a lot. Not, not you here in the house, but if you're right, out but if you're, you're out, out and about. Yeah, and I'm glad we clarified that, by yeah. the way, yeah, because I was already. Yeah. 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 And, hand, and hand sanitizer works. This is a, viruses come uh, in a variety of ways. This one is is uh, in an envelope of, of, of some protein and also some lipid. So there's, it's, a, it's an enveloped virus. Soap will kill it. Okay. Uh, alcohol will kill it. Bleach will kill it. Okay. It's, it's not a very hardy virus, realistically. Okay. So and bourbon so, is the answer. Uh, bourbon would work. Uh, 44 <laughs> North would work. Yeah, there's <laughs> a variety of options. Yeah. We're kidding right now. We're kidding. We're kidding. All right. Okay, Dad, so let's go ahead and wrap up. You have up. to wash your hands with bourbon, though. Are you going to do that? Yeah, yeah, but, no, I'm going to drink it, and then I'll wash my hands. Um, before and after, uh, if I'm outside of the comfort of my home. Anything else? I know I've asked you a lot of questions. You're pretty tired. It's time to go have dinner. 
what is there anything else out there whether you want to give a little bit of peace of mind or give an update anything else that you would like to share with the folks at home especially here is mostly just a local audience <clears throat> in the state of Idaho. well this is this is a virus that there when it broke out in probably november in china because uh, it's a new virus that's not been seen before by any human being on the planet there were seven something billion people that are susceptible so it's not going to go away anytime soon uh, because of an infection like this has to run its course through the population establish global immunity to some extent maybe not total herd immunity but enough immunity that is no longer readily or frequently transmitted that's going to be a long process. It might be a couple of years. We don't know. Uh, it is more contagious than, than seasonal influenza, probably two to three times more contagious. Uh, it may be more lethal. Uh, again, we don't have the denominator of asymptomatic people that can carry it and not get sick. So we know that in terms of the people that have symptoms, about 10% will die maybe 5%, probably 5%. Um, but we don't know, and those are those are not just symptoms, but symptoms that are the hospitalized, okay? There's tons of people that have a cough and shortness of breath and congestion that are outpatient, that are home, that are gonna be fine. If you get admitted to the hospital, you've got about a 5% chance of dying from this. Um, that's probably not too different than influenza, maybe a little bit higher. Um, but the problem is there's no immunity and we have no vaccine right now. So the whole, I mean, for this virus, the world is its oyster. It, it, we, have, we have no way of getting in front of it right now until we come up with an effective medication, which we may or may not have, or a vaccine, which might be a year away. So it's going to keep going. We have to, it's something we're going to have to live with. Don't panic about it. Don't lose sleep over it. It's, it's part of our life now, and we just have to deal with it. And, uh, you know, you do the best you can. If you're in a super high risk group, try to be as, as, as cautious as you can. You don't need to live, you know, be a hermit, but just be super cautious, be liberal with hand washing, be liberal with wearing a mask, stay away from people that are coughing and, and, and just do the best you can. And you should come out of this. Nice. Nice. Probably take extra essential oils. That's probably <laughs> going to be a very effective way to <laughs> practice some extra, practice. extra essential bourbon. Extra essential bourbon. Oil, oil of fermented <laughs> corn and grain. Yes. <laughs> right. Especially Idaho brand. Especially Idaho, Idaho brand. Yeah. That. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Uh, appreciate everybody at Argus Productions. Uh, Destin, Erica, thank you so much for allowing my Idaho friends to be a part of Argus TV. And Idaho, for all of you who are watching, whenever you get a chance, get out there and be kind to somebody or do it from home. Wash your hands. Wash your hands. Listen to the double. Wash your hands, crush your hands. Yes, absolutely. What? <laughs> all right. That's what you do in the river. Okay, yeah, that is what you do in the river. Thank you so much for watching. And uh, again, uh, we, we appreciate you joining us and be safe out there. And please don't lose your mind. Yeah, don't Take lose care. your mind. Take care.